Good afternoon and welcome. Glad you're with us. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. So let me ask you a personal question. How'd you sleep last night? Did you get up feeling rested and ready or frustrated and tired? Well, today we're going to tackle the problem of insomnia. My guest is Dr. Jade Wu. She's a board-certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist at the Duke University School of Medicine, and she has written a terrific book that outlines a strategy for solving a dilemma that nearly 25 million Americans face night after night. For some of us, sleep is hard. Why is that? Dr. Wu says we need to improve our relationship with sleep. In her new book, she suggests a series of steps to help us do just that, and if you'll forgive the expression, she puts to rest some of the misconceptions that we've long held about the reasons so many of us encounter problems when it comes to doing something that is so essential to human survival. The book is called Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without medications. Jade Wu joins us on Zoom from Durham, North Carolina. Jade, welcome back. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. We are indebted to our mutual friend, Monica Reinagle, the nutrition yes. diva. Um, you were last on the show a couple of years ago, and we talked about the correlation and the relationship between sleep and appetite. Um, but you you uh, have written this absolutely terrific book. Congratulations on it. It just Thank came out. Thank you so out. much. Because um, it, it really gives you, you know, very... Uh, specific suggestions for how to how to deal with this and and you talk about at the core of this is building and, and improving your relationship with sleep what do you mean by that what does a relationship with sleep entail sure so i think often we talk about sleep as a project an engineering problem right like these are the hacks that you can use or these are the tips to follow these are the rules of sleep hygiene to follow to get better sleep but then we're kind of treating sleep like something we can just turn the knobs on and off and improve it at our will right but we forget that sleep is actually an involuntary process something that happens to us not something we can force so really to get a better um, to get better sleep and to have a better long-term healthy relationship with sleep and healthy sleep i really like to focus on the relationship is how do you think about sleep how do you approach sleep you know are you overbearing and um or are you um uh you know supportive as a friend you know giving sleep the the things that it needs to thrive but not being overbearing and working too hard at it finding that really good middle balance and being a good friend yeah, that's interesting. And and it's like a friendship. So if you are overbearing, uh that friendship is going to uh have problems, but if you're not, it's it's going to thrive. Um I learned so much in this book. Um talk a little bit about the distinction you make between being sleepy and being tired. That's a fantastic question because I think that is a distinction we often forget about. So being sleepy is when you need sleep, when you haven't slept enough or when your sleep quality hasn't been good, you're sleepy or you've just had enough time during the day to be active and now your body is ready for sleep. So the way you tell uh, that you're sleepy is when your eyes get droopy, you're yawning, you're kind of reading the same sentence three times and you can't quite get it. Um, and really the only cure for sleepiness is to sleep. On the other hand, tiredness 
could happen at any time of the day or night. It can be due to many different reasons, but not necessarily that you need sleep. So tired could be, you know, you're stressed, you're bored, you need uh, some more hydration, you need to move your legs, you haven't eaten enough nutritious food. There are so many different reasons for tired that if we feel tired, we automatically think we need to go sleep, then that's putting a lot of pressure and responsibility for sleep to, um, you know, solve all of our problems. But really what we need is often something else. Yeah, you talk about how you could even have a really good night's sleep, you know, what what most of us would uh, qualify as a good night's sleep, and still be tired the next day. Um, That sleep itself isn't the fix for all of that stuff. Exactly, because if we are going around really stressed, for example, if we're not giving um, ourselves time to rest and to rejuvenate our bodies and souls, then we're going to be carrying this burden of tiredness no matter how much we sleep, we're not going to get rid of that tiredness if we're not really giving our bodies and minds what you know what they truly need. And the other definition uh, that you 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 make uh, an important distinction with is this word rest. And you say that actually one of the ways to improve sleep is to prioritize rest during the daytime. But rest and sleep are not the same thing either. That's right. Rest can take on many forms. Rest is the cure for tiredness. So I like to think of it this way. You know, imagine in our evolutionary past, our caveman ancestors, they're going around, they're hunting, they're gathering, they're doing their thing. Now, what would be the one reason for them to go, uh, go, go, go all day without any rest? Now, the only reason is if there's a saber-toothed tiger on their tail, right? So if that's the case, then of course they shouldn't sleep. You know, their their stress signals that their bodies are sending them are saying, you know, there's danger on the horizon. You cannot sleep. You cannot rest. Otherwise, they would be resting. So think about what message you're sending to your body. If you're going, going, going all day between work and chores and kids and all of the things without taking a moment to really just breathe and get grounded and then take a moment to yourself then the message you're sending to your body is that there must be danger on the horizon. So then, of course, your sleep will not come to you. The book is called Hello, Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. My guest is Jade Wu. She is a sleep specialist on the faculty of Duke University Medical School. Our number here is 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. And so, Jay, we already have a question, and I bet we'll have a bunch uh, through the course of the hour. This is uh, from uh, a listener, uh, T. Guthrie, who says, a good friend of mine uh, was experiencing difficulty getting to sleep. And since he's been exercising, he reports being able to fall and stay asleep straight through the night. Would you please discuss how exercise helps to regulate our sleep-wake rhythm? And one of the surprising things you write uh, in your book is that uh, we, we used to be told that exercising too late in the day, too close to when we go to sleep, uh, was a bad idea. But you're saying that that's not necessarily such a bad idea. That's correct. And I'm so glad to hear that this friend is sleeping much better with exercise. And that is, I'm not surprised to hear that because the way that our bodies regulate sleep and wake is we need to build up enough sleep drive during the day in order to earn ourselves good sleep throughout the night. So sleep drive is like your piggy bank, you know, you're putting sleeping as coins in there all day long, and you're putting in more 
with bonus points if you're being active. So exercising is an excellent way to just be healthy in general and to also earn yourself that extra sleep drive. So I'm not surprised that this is helping um, this person's friend sleep better. And yes, we used to be told, you know, don't stimulate yourself too much in the evenings close to bedtime with exercise because you won't sleep well. But actually more recent scientific evidence in a meta-analysis, which is uh, when we pull data from a bunch of different studies to look at you know, the overview of the research, we find that actually even vigorous exercise in the evening is okay. And I'm really happy to hear this news because I think it's just so hard to find time to exercise in our daily, um, you know, modern days that, you know, adding one more barrier of having specific timing when you're not allowed to do it just makes it so much harder. So I'm happy to tell people exercise anytime you want to, including near bedtime. So all this stuff that I heard about, you know, it increases endorphins and it gets you all hyped up. Um, you don't think that that actually holds water when it comes to actual data? Well, it might hype you up in the moment, but once you give yourself, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes to come down from that, which I think we kind of need that time anyway, in between, let's say going for a run on the treadmill, we, you know, have to take a shower, or get to change into pajamas. By the time you've done that and actually gone into bed, um, that revved upness from your body will have gone away and you are actually better prepared for sleep. At this point, so one of the uh, heartening uh, assertions you make in this wonderful book is that insomnia is treatable. So th this is something, and 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 medications aren't necessarily the first line of defense here. Um, there's cognitive therapy that that really does work, and this is the kind of work that you do with uh, individual patients at Duke all the time, right? That's right. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI for short. So this is uh, an unfortunately little-known treatment, but it works really well. There are actually over 100 really high-quality studies, um, you know, trials showing that this this treatment works really well. And the reason it does is that it actually gets at the root of the issue. So it's not, um, it doesn't just knock you out. It's not like um, a relax, just a relaxation practice that gets you relaxed in the moment, but doesn't solve the ongoing issues that are keeping insomnia in your life. What CBTI does is work, you know, I work with patients to identify their individual factors for what's keeping their insomnia going long term. And often these are counterintuitive things, like, you know, people sometimes after a couple of bad nights, they'll say, oh my gosh, I really, really need to catch up. So let me take a long nap or let me go to bed extra early. Now, on the face of it, of course, that makes sense. You're trying to make up for lost sleep. But what that does is that takes away from your sleep drive. It kind of borrows against, you know, that piggy bank full of sleepiness coins. And then you end up having even more trouble in the long run. So it's things like this that CBTI works to address for the individual patient. But we can also um, glean some general themes, common themes from it. Um, and that's what I write about in the book is, you know, the common themes that happen across almost everybody with insomnia. And I hope that, you know, these the, these will be helpful for people who are reading, who are feeling really lonely in their experience, but can read about it in the book and say, oh, wow, like this happens to other people too. Um, you say that our brains have little bursts of deep sleep, even while we're awake, which was wild to me to read. And that <laughs> people at night uh, do sometimes, it's normal to have brief 
bursts of waking up 10 to 16 times a night. That seems like an awful lot. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess we're, we're waking up in these little, little glints of it that we maybe don't even notice that we're awake. That's right. Yeah. The way I like to think about it is, you know, we're like whales diving into the deep. Um, but then whales need to surface every once in a while to breathe. Right. So that's like that's how it is with sleep. We may not remember most of the times that we wake up because they're so brief that we go back to sleep without really noticing that we, we've been awake. And, you know, the way the brain works is it doesn't really encode those memories unless there's something important about you know, about that um, that time that we woke up. So ironically, when we pay too much attention to the fact that we're awake or we're worried about waking up during the night, we're paying more attention, we're more likely to remember those awakenings, we're more likely to get anxious once we wake up and prolong that awakening and end up staying awake for a long time, tossing and turning, frustrated, you know, um, feeling feeling really lonely and desperate. And then that's how we have that insomnia experience. And uh, you, you confront this very uh, condition uh, head on in the book. You say, if you are awake in the middle of the night, when should I get uh, back into bed and try again? And your answer is never. So <laughs> explain, <laughs> explain why that's your answer. That's really fun. Right, because the key word there is try. The worst thing you can do when you're having trouble sleep, falling asleep or falling back to sleep is to try harder to sleep because that effort, that's what's revving up your body and mind. You know, think of it this way. Your sleep, like we said, you know, sleep is your friend. We want to cultivate that relationship. But know that sleep is a shy friend. She's very loyal. She will take really good care of you. She's stuck around for a really long time. But if you get overbearing and you try to chase her down and force her to hang out with you, then she will run away even further. So remember that sleep comes to you. You know, you can allow sleep to happen, but you can't force it. So if you are struggling to sleep during the night, get up out of bed, do something else enjoyable. Um, you can do anything you want as long as it's just for the sake of enjoyment. And then when you feel sleepy again, you can allow sleep to come to you. But don't go back to bed to try. Yeah, it's the trying that causes the anxiety that keeps you awake, right? And exactly. That, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really weird catch-22. And when it comes to doing stuff that you enjoy, um, you, you put to bed uh, a, a myth, so to speak, uh, a myth about uh, screens, um, for example, and I, I get up in the middle of the night and, and sometime, you know, interesting, ironically, I read a good portion of your book at like three o'clock <laughs> in the morning and I thought, what's wrong with this picture? I'm reading a book about insomnia. Um, but, but, but looking at a screen, looking at, at my phone or, or, or a computer, um, it used to be thought that that's really, you know, not such a good idea because of the light and everything. Um, what's your take on, uh, you know, uh, having a screen on or, or a television, if you get on, you know, if you watch the, the end of the movie that you maybe have fallen asleep, in, uh -huh. in during, you know, uh, what, how, how does that play into uh, people's general success? Well, so this is an excellent question because it's a little bit tricky to answer. So there is some truth to this, that being on your screens can negatively affect your sleep. And the reason is that the, uh, well, a couple of possible reasons. One is that the light emitted by these screens contain blue wavelength lights. So these um, short wavelength lights that stimulate 
the brain into thinking that it's daytime. So when the brain is tricked into thinking that it's daytime, then of course we'll wake up more. The brain is firing up our engines to to perform, right? Um, and the other possible reason that is keeping us awake is by the content on those screens. So I bet, you know, reading a Jane Austen novel on your Kindle is not going to be the same as watching Mission Impossible, you know, on your big flat screen TV. Those, those are going to be two different experiences. Um, but I, I want to reassure people that they don't need to be completely screen celibate in the evenings or even during the night because our brains are very smart. They're not just taking the amount of light that's coming in in the evenings uh, as clues for what, daytime, what day, time of day it is. It's also taking in clues during the day. So if you are getting lots of light during the day, like you're going outside, you're walking your dog, you know, um, you're, you're exercising better yet, or if you're working inside, you're working by a very bright window, those are all great things because that's giving your brain a really clear signal that that's daytime. So as long as the contrast between the amount of light you get during the day and the amount of light you get at night, as long as that contrast is big, then your brain will not be confused and you will um, you are allowed to use screens in the, the evenings. Yeah, that was a really interesting and important point that the amount of light you get during the day will help mm -hmm. you sleep better at night. That's really... That's something. Really, yeah. I really just really enjoyed this. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk more with Dr. Jade Wu about her book, Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. I'm Tom Hall. If you need to catch a power nap, you've got 90 seconds. Go. This is 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up Monday, my guest will be Ben Jealous. He's the former president of the NAACP, and he was the Democratic candidate for governor here in Maryland back in 2018. He's written a compelling book about how to overcome the scourge of racism. It's called Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. A Parable of American Healing. Ben Jealous joins me Monday on Midday. And if you've just joined us today, my guest is Dr. Jade Wu of the Duke University School of Medicine. We're talking about her new book, Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. If you have a question about insomnia or experiences to share, give us a call, 410-662-8780. You can email us, as a lot of folks have already done, midday at wypr.org, and you can tweet us at midday WIPR. And Jade, one of the, the emails we have comes from Kyle. What is your opinion on using cannabis to help with insomnia? And you do talk uh, a lot in the book. You have a whole chapter about medications and stuff. But uh, when it comes specifically to cannabis for insomnia, what's your take? Yeah, that's a little bit tricky. The, uh, the research results are not quite conclusive at this point. There are mixed results. So what we can say, this is a little bit oversimplified, but it seems like at different doses of CBD, there might be beneficial effects for sleep. Not huge effects, but some. Whereas THC likely 
does not help sleep, at, at least not in the long run. It may be that THC, which is a psychoactive component of um, uh, cannabis, that it's the part that you you get in a, a high from, um, that may help you feel more relaxed or kind of take the edge off of the stress of your day. But that may actually interfere with your sleep quality such that you end up not getting as good quality sleep. And also in the long run, you may become dependent on that for sleep, either psychologically or chemically, and that may not solve um, your sleep problems at its roots. But in the short term, it might make you feel more relaxed, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, talk about melatonin, because a lot of people take melatonin pills, which you can get you know, over the counter in drugstores, uh, as, if, as if it were a sleeping pill. Uh, is it? It's actually not a sleeping pill. This is a great question. So melatonin, um, here's the background on melatonin. It's a natural hormone that your brain already secretes. And it's a timekeeping hormone. So it's supposed to ramp up in the evenings and get higher and higher and higher during the night and then subside over the course of the wee morning hours and be gone by, by morning. So it's really just a way of your brain keeping track of what time it is so that your body can be ready for sleep when it's supposed to and ready for wake when it's supposed to. So most people who are taking melatonin are taking it at a time where it won't really make a difference. They're usually taking it at bedtime or you know shortly before bedtime. By that time, your own melatonin is already high. So what is what melatonin is really used for is not for insomnia, but for people who have circadian rhythm disorders, who, for example, are extreme night owls who have trouble functioning uh, by the conventional clock because they are just biologically hardwired to want to go to bed really, really late, like 2, 3, 4, 5 a.m. and wake up really, really late. Um, so using melatonin, we can um, help people like that to shift their circadian rhythm earlier. Now, you would do that by taking melatonin several hours before their natural s sleepy time um, to shift. So, you know, that again doesn't really, uh, um, that's not really how people are taking melatonin usually. And another important thing to know about melatonin is that it's over the counter, which means it's not FDA regulated. And there's this really fascinating study that just they just went and sampled a bunch of different melatonin brands from the shelves, and they found that the amount of melatonin in these pills varied widely, sometimes as high as five times what was advertised on the label. So that means you may not be getting the amount of melatonin that you think you are, which might actually backfire because if you have a lot of melatonin left in your system in the morning when you're supposed to not have melatonin any, uh, melatonin anymore, you may end up feeling groggy um, or feeling sleepy or feeling like you didn't get good sleep, even if you did. And, you know, you do make the point that according to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, the first line treatment for insomnia is not medication of any sort, but it's this CB. TI, right? The the cognitive uh, therapy. Correct. Cognitive behavioral therapy for yeah. insomnia. Right. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's interesting. So, the, you know, the, the recommendation, the professional medical recommendation if you have insomnia is not to start with pills, um, but to, you know, to try cognitive therapy first. But there are some people who do need uh, sleep aids, right? They do need things that, that uh, they, they, they need medicine. Um, sleeping, so <laughs> sure. sleeping pills. So, and what would, at what point does, does a person need that? And what do those medications do actually? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think there is absolutely a place for sleeping medications. I am not here at all to say that they are bad and you shouldn't take them. So, um, for example, some people have comorbid conditions, so something other than insomnia going on too. They may have uh, pain or depression or seizures or something else where it might make the most sense to take a medication that targets both that condition and insomnia. Uh, or um, for some people, they cannot access CBTI, cognitive therapy, because it is actually really difficult to find a provider. There are not many of us, only about 200, uh, you know, uh, 200 board certified ones in the US or in the world. So, you know, it, it does make a lot of sense, especially short term um, for people to take medication. And then there are also, you know, um, for example, children with autism do benefit from melatonin for improving their sleep. So there are lots of exceptions to this first line um, approach. Wow, there's only 200 of you all doing this work around the, the world? Somewhere around, yeah, it, it, we might be like in the low 200s now. Wow. <laughs> We're counting. And I've got you for an hour. This is going to cost me a fortune. My gosh, this is great. <laughs> well, well, the good news is that there are many more people being trained in CBTI. There are many, many more CBTI providers than those of us who really specialize in this. Um, so it's not quite as bad as that, but mm. there is a still a major shortage of, of, of us yeah, to go around. But help is on the way. That's good. Um, let's go to uh, the phones to Robert, who's on the line in Baltimore. Robert, welcome to Midday with Dr. Jade Wu. Good morning, and thank you very much. It's a great program, and I enjoy it. But I hate to put a damper on your program, but I'm uh, born totally blind, and the sleeping problem I have is very serious to the point that I go days without sleeping. And this thing that everyone speaks about as far as light and dark does not benefit a blind person in any way shape or form and i've tried this you know talk about this non-24 all blind people have that serotonin problem and we can't see the difference between light and dark so some of what you're saying really will not help someone that is visually impaired and the older you get the worse it is for sleeping so i was wondering if you had any comments you could make on that and i'm not trying to uh, you know, not what you say, but some of what you're saying does not, I, I don't agree with it, to be honest with you. The, hi, Robert. Thank you so much for calling in. And I'm so sorry to hear, yeah, that is a really tough conundrum. You're, you're absolutely right. People who are vision impaired, um, especially, you know, people who are nearly blind or blind, um, have a much harder time taking those circadian cues, those um, light cues to help their brain know what time is day and night. Now, the good news is that there are still other cues that your body can take, such as activity level, meal times, um, you know, basically the things that happen during the day, um, if they happen at a consistent time, then it'll really help your brain to know what time of day it is. So, for example, if you always have um, your three meals at the same times, if you um, go for a walk or, you know, do a stretch or you always call your friends or talk to people, you know, or take a class or whatever it may be that gets your body and brain revved up. If you do those um, and really activate yourself during the day and try to keep those activities at about the same times, that'll go a long way to helping your circadian rhythms um, still to stay, stay on track. 
All right. Well, thank you, Robert, for that call. I really appreciate it. Um, We have an email uh, from David. I'm 64 years old, and I've struggled with getting good sleep and rest for years. I get regular exercise, and I'm a normal weight, and I use a CPAP machine, which I started using following a sleep study. I typically fall asleep easily at bedtime, and he doesn't say what that bedtime is, but I often wake up at 4.30 or 5 a.m., and I have trouble getting back to sleep, and I spend the day feeling wrung out. What's your advice? So let's talk a little bit about the CPAP machine and the uh, the condition that that's treating, because you do uh, write a lot about that uh, in the book. Yes. So first of all, good job on using your CPAP. That's really, that's just, uh, you're doing great for your health just by doing that. Um, so a CPAP is prescribed for people who have obstructive sleep apnea. Um, this is a surprisingly common sleep disorder where someone uh, has obstructions in their airway during sleep um, such that you know they stop breathing for a while and their brain has to wake them up to force them to breathe. Now this happens uh, very frequently during the night. For someone with severe sleep apnea, this could be happening every two minutes or even more frequently throughout the whole night that they're sleeping. So you can imagine that this person with severe sleep apnea would not be getting good quality sleep. Um, and in fact, people with untreated sleep apnea are sometimes not getting any deep sleep at all. Uh, and that's, of course, a huge burden on their brain and heart health. So sleep apnea is... Um, quite common and it's one of the major sort of low-hanging fruits I think for health for us as a, as a society. A lot of people are going around with sleep apnea undiagnosed, untreated and I feel like if we could just recognize sleep apnea more and have more people be treated, um, we will solve a lot of problems. Is there a cause of sleep apnea? I mean, are there things that one can do to to fend off ever getting it? Sleep apnea is a pretty complicated disorder, so there are many factors that um, that go into it, and a lot of it is genetic. Um, some of it is lifestyle. It could even be so. For example, Asian people are actually, or people of Asian descent, are more likely to have sleep apnea because our uh, facial cranial structure, literally the shape of our you know face bones, uh, make it more likely for us to have uh, a narrower airway upper airway. So, you know, there are many factors that we probably don't even know about yet. Um, But generally, it is, uh, one is less likely to have sleep apnea if they are physically active, um, and of a healthy weight range, and, um, you know, are, are, uh, active. So that that goes a long way. Um, And the way that you treat sleep apnea is there are a few different types of treatments, but CPAP, um, which is uh, continuous positive airway pressure, um, is the most common treatment. But there are also other innovations in that space recently. Like there's uh, ways that you can stimulate your tongue slightly to move out of the way to open up that airway. So you're not you know, your tongue's not blocking that airway and forcing you to wake up. So there are many treatment options now. And for people with milder apnea, something like a wedge pillow or sleeping on your side or even a mouth guard might be enough. Let's go to the phones again to Dan. He's in Harford County. Welcome to Midday with Dr. Jade Wu. Hello. Uh, hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. I have actually two questions. The first one is, is how I'm in my mid-50s, about how normal is the 3 o'clock wake-up. I see a bunch of cartoons on it. Me, I wake up a lot of days at 3 a.m., attempt to either try to read a book or listen to a book on tape, 
or you know something like that to get back to sleep. So that's number one. How normal is the 3 a.m. wake up? And then the second one is if you're interrupted in the sleep cycle, like from a neighbor's car who goes to work at crazy hours or the dogs bark and I have to go let outside, how do you get back to sleep? Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. And whether or not it's normal, uh, I've been accused of a lot of things. I've never been accused of being normal, and it certainly happens to me <laughs> all a bunch of times at 3 o'clock in the morning. So I think there's a lot of people with whom that, uh, or for whom that's the case. So what do you think, Dr. Wu? Yes, that is super common. And I would also say normal. Um, because so, so here's why the 3 a.m. wake-up happens. It's actually built into our biology somewhat. So historically, before the invention of you know modern technologies and invention of the eight-hour workday in pre-industrial Europe, for example, and other times and places in, in history, people would routinely get up in the middle of the night or about you know the wee hours of the morning, like three a.m., and just be up for an hour or two, like chatting with neighbors, uh, visiting, singing songs, having sex, you know, enjoying life, um, preparing for bread for the next next day. And, and then they will go back for their second sleep. And this reflects actually our natural biology. So the night is kind of naturally split up into two parts. The first part is mostly driven by our homeostatic sleep drive, that, that sleep hunger I was talking um, I, I was speaking about earlier, where we build up that sleep drive during the day, and then we burn off that sleep drive in the first half or so of the night. And that's also the half of the night where we get most of our deep sleep or slow wave sleep. Now, the second half of the night is where we get mo uh, most of our REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. So just qualitatively sleep speaking, the two halves of the night are different. And the way I like to think about it is the first half kind of runs the first leg of the race, then passes off the baton to your circadian rhythm, which is the force that keeps the second half going. Sometimes there's a little bit of a drop of the baton, and then the second half kind of has to catch up and pick it up and, and keep going. So it's not bad at all to have that break in the middle, um, unless, of course, then it becomes a long struggle and you can't get back to sleep or take, take you know, a really long time to get back to it. So my recommendation, first of all, is to not fret about it. It's not abnormal. It doesn't mean that your um, sleep quality is bad or that you have to start over, you know, to, to answer your other question, just because your sleep is interrupted doesn't mean that your sleep is um you know, damaged or that you have to start all over again, unless it's interrupted many, many times. So to get back to sleep, I would just say, you know, enjoy the sensation of being in bed. Instead of trying really hard to count sheep or to meditate yourself back to sleep, just enjoy the sensation. Get out of your head and into your body you know, have no agenda, no goal oriented, you know, I must get back to it within this amount of time or else I won't have enough time to get, you know, once you start doing those mental gymnastics and calculations of how many hours you have left, then you're in trouble. Um, so just go with the flow. And then if you really don't get back to sleep, even if you're relaxing, going with the flow, get out of bed and do something enjoyable uh, until you feel sleepy again. If you truly don't feel sleepy enough to get back to bed, that means that your brain has had enough, you know? And sometimes our brain's need for sleep changes from day to day, week to week, season to season, you know? So don't fret if you're sleeping 
less in the winter than the summer, or you're sleeping less now at, at age whatever than 20 years ago. Um, we can trust our brains to know what's best best for us, and trust that our brains are very good at um, automatically adjusting our sleep um, to suit our needs for the moment. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about the eight hours of sleep myth that you write about, uh, the, the the common wisdom that everybody needs eight hours a night. Turns out that's not true. Dr. Jade Wu, we are talking about her new book, Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. We will have more with Dr. Wu on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR, where you're tuned to Midday. Ooh, little sleepy boy, do you know what time it is? Well, the hour of your bedtime's long been past. And though I know you find me, when you rub your eyes, you're fading fast Oh, fading fast Won't you run cold sea saying to these comet roll across the skies And leave a spray of diamonds in its way I long to see saying to these comet sparkle in your eyes When you awake, oh, when you wake Great lullabies. Paul Simon wrote St. Judy's Comet to help his son fall asleep. Nearly 25 million Americans have a hard time either falling asleep or staying asleep. I used to sing this tune for my little daughter. Now I just put people to sleep on the radio. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're talking about insomnia. My guest is Dr. Jade Wu. She's a behavioral sleep medicine specialist and researcher at the Duke University School of Medicine. She counsels patients about how to sleep better, and she's written a book in which she shares the techniques that she recommends to her patients. It's helpful. It's a step-by-step guide, and it is a terrific read. I really, really like this book a lot. It's called Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. We'll try to take some calls if we have time. 410-662-8780, our email midday at wypr.org, and you can tweet us at midday WIPR. So, Jade, in terms of figuring out how much sleep you need, um, how do you come to that conclusion? Uh, eight hours used to be the standard that everybody, I guess, tried to get, but you're saying that doesn't that standard doesn't necessarily apply to everybody. That's right. Just like we all have different heights, you know, we all have different needs for sleep. So we all fall on this uh, fall on this bell curve. Some of us need eight hours. Some some of us need more or less. And we also change how much we need throughout our life. You know, when you're a baby, you need something like sixteen hours. But by the time you retire and get into older age, you may need much less than that. Maybe something like six hours. So we need to be flexible in our understanding of how much sleep we need in order to have that good relationship with sleep. Because having a rigid or unrealistic expectation 
just strains that relationship and actually makes it more likely for you to have sleep problems. So to figure out how much sleep you need, I mean, barring any other major sleep disorders um, or psychiatric disorders, it's actually a pretty simple two-step program <laughs> to figure it out. First step is just to wake up at the same time every day or just about the same time every day. And once you've been doing that for a week or two, your body will tell you how much sleep you need by making you sleepy in the evenings at just the right time. So just by listening to your body in the evening and letting that be flexible, um, you can listen to your body and figure out the exact right time to go to bed. And you talk about how everybody has a chronotype. Uh, this is a kind of a hardwired thing in our brains uh, that, that keeps us awake uh, or makes us sleepy at certain times of the day. Some people are morning people. Some people are night owls. Um, and, and it can be different and healthy under uh, a number of different scenarios, right? That's correct. Yes, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the time we stigmatize night owls and say things like, "Oh, just go to bed at a decent hour or wake up earlier. You'll be more productive." Um, but I think that's really unfair to us night owls uh, because you know there's a good reason why we humans evolved to have a variety of of um, when we want to go to bed and when to wake up because you know evolutionarily speaking, if we're thinking back to our caveman cavewoman tribe. If everybody fell asleep at the exact same time, then that saber-toothed tiger just has to sharpen his claws all day and wait patiently, right? It's like it would be the most predictable meal um, for that tiger. So it's a good thing for our species survival that some of us are night owls and like to stay up late. Some of us are early birds who, you know, want to get up and get the bow strung for hunting. So it's okay for us to have that diversity. Now, for each of us individually to get the most healthy sleep and feel our best, we want to work with our bodies instead of against our bodies. So if, if you can swing it, you know, sleep and wake by the schedule that your body most desires. And the way you figure that out is just imagine if you were on vacation for a month or two with no obligations at all at any particular time and no one to judge you, including yourself. And, what time would you naturally kind of fall into as a pattern? You know, so if you are going to be falling asleep a lot later and a lot uh, getting up a lot later, and that would make you happy and make your body feel good, then that's your chronotype. You're more of a night owl. So do your best to uh, work with your body and sleep by your chronotype. We have an email from Patricia who says, how trustworthy are devices like Fitbits when they report the amount of sleep one has had? What do you think? Are those things credible? You know, these devices are getting very good at telling when we're awake and when we're asleep. So if the question is, you know, can I tell how much how much sleep I got, then sure, yeah, the, the device will be pretty good. Um, but the s different stages of sleep, not as good. They're getting better, but it, they're not, they're still not quite as accurate. Um, another thing I should say, too, is that these devices are mostly uh, designed based on data from people who don't have sleep disorders. So if you do have insomnia or do have another sleep problem, the algorithms in these devices may not be as relevant for you. Uh, it may not pick up as much of the time that you're awake or the, the amount of time that you're asleep. And usually the trend is such that th these devices tell insomniacs that they slept less than they actually did. So then it makes insomniacs more anxious about their sleep. 
Uh, we have a caller from Salisbury. Sarah is on the line. Sarah, welcome to Midday with Dr. Jade Wu. Thank you. I was wondering if you could address the issue of menopause-related insomnia with with estrogen issues. As a, a excellent sleeper my whole life, sleeping and eating, two things I was really good at. Um, I was <laughs> 7.5 hours a night every night my whole life, and then bam. Um, without the estrogen, the sleep just went away, and estrogen replacements are a problem with my migraine issues. And it's been 10 years and two months that my life has changed. Because I cannot sleep, I've tried so many different things. Uh, drugs don't work well. They make me groggy the next day. Any insights into dealing with that? Yeah, thanks for that call, Sarah. And Dr. Wu, you do write about menopause. You write about pregnancy, about you know particular conditions that uh, certainly affect how we sleep. Yes, absolutely. This is a great question, Sarah, and I'm so sorry you've been dealing with this for so long. Um, but yeah, I write a whole chapter called Hello Hormones specifically for this reason. Um, because women with our many hormonal upheavals throughout our lives, uh, we are much more likely to have insomnia, about time and a half to two times as likely as men. So menopause is one of the most common times for a person to get insomnia. Um and I'm really sorry that this is happening to so many people all the time. And some of it is not within our control. That's the bad news. Uh, for example, having hot flashes will interfere with sleep quality because, as we all know, you know, our bodies need to cool down in order to sleep well. So hot flashes are are interfering with that. Um, and you know, other things like um, hormonal upheaval uh, and you know, mood changes, appetite changes, all of these things can um, disrupt our sleep. Now, the good thing, the good news is that it doesn't mean your sleep has to be bad forever. Like any other major disruptor in your life, menopause can throw your sleep off track, but it doesn't necessarily have to keep your sleep off track. Now, once you're past menopause, which it sounds like, Sarah, you you are now that you're 10 years out, um, once you're past that disruptor, what's keeping your sleep poor is likely not those hormonal changes anymore or those hot flashes. It's things that are keeping the insomnia going for itself. It's almost like insomnia caught a life of its own and just took off. Um, so that is actually good news uh, because the things that keep insomnia going long term are kind of universal for everybody, menopause or no. That means there are strategies you can use to get back on track with sleep. And I've worked with many, many patients who are in the middle of menopause, you know, two years past, uh, 10 years past, 20 years past. And um, you may be pleasantly surprised by how treatable your insomnia is, even at this stage. You also write about the effects of age on sleep. One of our callers alluded to it today, but there's a big study that you uh, cite from the Netherlands, the UK, and the US that found that people over the age of 65 were getting the same amount of sleep as people in middle age and even people in their 30s, which is actually about seven hours a day. So uh, should we expect to sleep less as we get older? So I'm so glad you bring up that study. The interesting thing that study found is that the average amount of sleep stayed about the same for older folks and um, you know younger folks. But the range for older folks was much bigger. That means the worst sleepers or like the people who are struggling the most with their sleep 
had much worse sleep in their older age than the worst sleepers in you know the earlier age group. So that means there is something in older age that changes about our sleep, though it doesn't necessarily mean that sleep has to get worse when you're older. Um, so for example, uh, one of the things that changes is the sleep need that people have. You know, when you're younger, you're going through puberty or having kids or running around doing all these things, your bodies need more healing or need uh, have needs that are different sure. than when you're older and less active. So and, that's and Dr. Wu, I'm, so, I'm awfully sorry, but that's all the time we have. And I really, oh, sure. really appreciate your time. The new book is called Hello Sleep, The Science and Art of Overcoming Insomnia Without Medications. Thanks so much and good luck with the book. It's a really terrific read, as I said. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. That's it for us today. Coming up Monday, I'll talk with former NAACP President Ben Jealous. Coming up now, the second part of our Black History Month special, a salute to MLK. Midday's director and engineer is Shania Maps and Luke Spicknells, our operations manager, Taria Rogers, Rob Sivak, and Mallory Pinkert Pierre produced the program. Austin Coglin from Clean Cuts wrote and recorded the midday theme music. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. This is 88.1 WYPR.